And none of us know when our time's going to come. Life is uncertain. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen on, on t- tomorrow. We're not immortal. Um, we are here for a little while. We don't know how long that is. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We, we step out of our house in the morning to go to work. We don't know if we're going to return that evening. We don't know what's going to happen to any of us. Uh, it's just life's uncertain. Um, as the scripture says in Proverbs 27, 1, I think, who knows what a day may bring, bring forth. And so we don't know uh, what's going to happen. Uh, will things go well tomorrow? What's going to happen mon- on Monday? I, I don't know. Things going to go well for us? Or is there going to be uh, a problem we're going to face? Are we gonna, uh, how's our financial situation going to be tomorrow? I don't know. Well, I can pretty well guess. <laughs> <laughs> but we don't know for sure how, how bad it's going to be. Look, we haven't made in this country, by the way. I was talking to Mike about this recently. We really haven't made in this country. We don't take, we take, we don't understand, I don't think we think about that, how, how we truly have so many blessings here. But we don't know what's going to happen. That being the case, how are we to live? How are we to live in the face of difficulties and uncertainties and uh, things that are beyond our control? Many things are beyond our control. Uh, what about tragedy? If that comes our way, what do we do? How do we face that? Well, we need a perspective on life. Uh, perspective on life that will guide us through the unknown, and we don't want just any perspective. Um, and I've talked about Stephen Hawking before, considered to be the world's smartest man. Uh, you know, Stephen Hawking was the former professor of mathematics at the University of Cambridge. I say that for a certain reason. Former professor of mathematics at the University of Cambridge. But the great and brilliant Stephen Hawking said, uh, and, he, and he is brilliant when it comes to math, but he said this, when it comes to theology, it's a different story. He said, there is no heaven, it's a fairy story. That's what he had to say about theology. Well, his perspective is obviously not, is not the biblical one. Um, but there, there was a former professor of mathematics, also University of Cambridge, before him, prior to him, by the name of Sir Isaac Newton. You ever heard of him? He held the biblical perspective, same post, same school. He said this, I have a fundamental belief in the Bible as the word of God, written by men who were inspired I study the Bible daily. That's an awesome thing. It shows you how things have changed over the time, too, at the University of Cambridge. But this is the perspective that we hold as believers. We hold a, a biblical perspective. That's the kind we hold. And the Bible shows us the reality of life. You know, people don't want the biblical perspective, but these people aren't living in reality either because the Bible shows us reality as it, re- as it is, life as it really is. And, so, and it shows us how to live in light of eternity. And so tonight we want to look at, we want to learn three lessons from Psalm 90, three lessons that will help us to formulate a biblical perspective on the brevity of life. Life is brief. Life is uncertain. How do we, uh, how do we view this? Three lessons. Number one, God is eternal. Look at Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2. God is eternal. Psalm 90, verse 1 says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth, and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Psalm 90 was written by Moses. Um, that may sound strange to you because we think of Moses as the writer of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. At least I think of him that way. At least all Bible believers should think of Moses as, those, as the writer of those books. The higher critics don't think that. But nevertheless, we don't think of him as writing a psalm. But look at the heading. Look at your, your Bibles, and before verse 1, do you see what it says there? It says, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Um, that's indicating who wrote this psalm. And since Moses wrote it, I think it's fair to say this is the oldest psalm there is. 
because Moses wrote it a long time ago. And uh, the background for this psalm is wilderness wanderings that he was a part of uh, under his leadership. And Moses draws upon his personal experience in those wilderness wanderings to, tell, to teach us valuable lessons that he learned about life and the brevity of life. And the psalm is called a prayer of Moses, which gives us some kind of insight into his relationship with God. He was the man of God, as the title says. By the way, he's called that elsewhere. He's described as the man of God in Deuteronomy 33, Joshua 14, 1 Chronicles 23, 2 Chronicles 30, and Ezra 3. He definitely was that. Nobody that's been alive on the planet has been, had a closer communion with God than Moses. And the Old Testament makes that clear. Uh, he was chosen of God uh, in the burning bush. God chose him and called him to be his, his leader. His leadership is confirmed by God again and again when his, authorities, his authority was often challenged. Uh, and he was yet nevertheless vindicated by God. He represented God before the people. So in the truest sense of the word, he was a man of God. And we know that because this is a prayer, Psalm 90, we know now that a man of God is also a man of prayer, right? A woman of God is also a woman of prayer, and the people of God are to be people who pray. That's what we do. Now Moses started his prayer out in verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. In uh, Deuteronomy 33, 27, he says it a little differently. He says, the eternal God is a dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. So Moses says the Lord has been our dwelling place, which uh, is a term that means our habitation, our home. The Lord is our home. He's the place that we, uh, where, this is where we live. We live with him. We live in him. The, the phrase dwelling place has the idea of, of refuge and protection and safety. So it's a place you can run to and feel safe and secure. Now, if anyone understood that, what, it, what security was and what insecurity was, it was Moses he, because he was a man without a home. He was a man without a country. For, for 40 years, they were wandering in the wilderness, wandering around, not getting anywhere, going in circles. In fact, he was not even allowed to go into the promised land. So if anybody knew what it was like to be without a home, without a place of, he could call his own, without a nation he could call his own, it was Moses. And uh, he learned as he went through this time, uh, as, he, as he lived, that God is his dwelling place. God is his true home. And he learned he could find security in the Lord, even though he couldn't find it anywhere else. Uh, is, you know, Moses and Israel would take up their tents and they would, they would, they'd pitch their tents and then they'd take them up when God wanted them to and they'd travel for a while and they'd pitch their tents again and then take them up again. It was always like that, on the move. Uh, they were traveling all the time. They would move constantly. They had no permanent dwelling place. They had no earthly security. But Moses found his refuge in the eternal God. That's what he says in verse 1. You have been our dwelling place in all generations. He found his dwelling place in God. And uh, Jesus was a similar manner. Jesus didn't have any earthly security. You remember what he said in the Gospels? He said to, to a person who considered following him, somebody said they wanted to follow Jesus, and he said, hey, I want you to know something. Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So Jesus didn't have an earthly place of refuge either. He had no real earthly security either. And he found refuge in his father, didn't he? He communed with his father all the time. And so he found him as a place of refuge, and he communed with him. Now, most people are, are always are seeking to find security in life in some way or another, but they completely ignore the true source of security, and that is the Lord. They ignore him altogether. And since the Lord is the place of security in all generations, it says, that means he was, he was the place of security and refuge in the generation Moses lived, 
and in the generation we lived. In this day and age, he's still the place of refuge. And so we need to find our security in God. While we're temporary residents here, and we are temporary residents, we come here, we're here for a while, and then we pass on. In the meantime, we need to find our security in God. Our security is not ultimately in our relationships. Yes, those, those are great relationships. Of course, we're, we, we treasure them. But our security is not found in relationships ultimately or in friendships. Our security is not found in money. It's not found in money in the bank that we have. We think we have today at least. We never know what's going to happen. Our friendship, our security is not found in, God, in, in a job. Some people are putting all their weight down on their job. That's all they have. That's great. But that's not where our security is found. It's found in God. Why? Because God's immortal. He's immortal and he's eternal. He's the dwelling place of all his people for all generations, past, present, or future. He's the eternal God. And so we, we can find refuge in him. Look at verse 2 of Psalm 90. It says, Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now the picture here is of, of giving birth. And just as a mother gives birth to a child, so the Lord give, gave birth to, to the, the, the planet. He, he brought it forth. The mountains are spoken of ha as having been born. They're his creation. Have you ever stood in a valley or stood on a, a plain and you looked out and you were in a place where there was mountains, towering mountains, and you looked at those and you, you know, I don't know if you've been there, but it's just awesome to look at that. I've seen mountains in different places. In the Carolinas, I've seen them, and they're, they're smaller mountains. Yet for you that live out west, I realize these are smaller mountains. To, to you guys, it's just hills, right? Mere foothill. To me, it, it, was, it was a great thing. I like to go to, to the mountains and see them. I've seen the mountains in Alaska, too, for you people out west as well, though. I've seen them there. Awesome mountains to see. And you look at those and you say, wow, the, 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 the majesty of God in, in creation. Who alone could create this except for the eternal God? It's just amazing. There was nothing. And then God spoke the word and mountains came forth. And, and the earth came forth. And the whole universe came forth. And God created all this. And before the universe existed, there was just God. There was only God, nothing else. And he created all this out of nothing. And, when, and by the way, he's going to exist when the world is burned up. He's still going to be here because he's the eternal and mortal God. From everlasting, I love the phrase, from everlasting to everlasting, uh, you are God. He's immortal. He's invisible. He's the only wise God, as the scriptures say, as the song says. In order for us to understand the brevity of life from a biblical perspective, we must understand the eternal nature of God. He's eternal, and our hope must not be placed in this life, but... Because this life is uncertain, but rather in the eternal God who is certain. He's eternal. He's the rock of our salvation. And so God is eternal. That's the first lesson Moses learned, that God is eternal. Even though he's in the wilderness, wandering around, going in circles, not getting anywhere at all, nevertheless, he knew that God was his refuge, his eternal uh, refuge. The second lesson he learned was this. Man is temporal. Man is temporal. That's found in verses 3 through 11. Man is temporal. Now, there's this great contrast between uh, God and man here. God is eternal and mortal, whereas we're here today and gone tomorrow. How many verses tell us that? Isaiah, the flower is here for a while, and then it fades away. And then we pass on, and we're, like, and we're compared to grass, even in this chapter right here. You know, it always astounds me when people act as if there's no God and that they have an upper hand on God somehow. Kind of like the people in Romans 1.22, they say, yeah, they profess, it says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. 1 Corinthians one twenty five: the foolishness of God is wiser than men, the weakness of God is stronger than men. How dare men, mere mortal men, think they have an upper hand on God? 
They have no upper hand on him. He's the eternal God. So there's this contrast here in verses 3 through 11. The first one is in verses 3 to 6. There's a contrast between God's sovereignty and our mortality. God's sovereignty and our mortality in verses 3 to 6. Verse 3 says, you, turn, you, you, Lord, turn man back into dust and say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. Who turns man back to dust? It says you turn man back, back into dust. God is sovereign over the life of human and, and the death of human beings. He is sovereign over that. It is God who said, return, O children of men, back to dust. That's where we came from. Genesis 3.19 says, you are dust, a man, and to dust you shall return. And that's true. And, and unless the Lord returns, we're going to go back to dust. We're frail creatures. We're but, we're but dust. And the sovereign, powerful God says to man, fail, fail, frail, finite man, return to dust. To dust. Verse 4, for a thousand years, it says, in your sight, or like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. You know, it's like, uh, it's like uh, in, one est in our estimation, a thousand years is a long time. We think, man, it's a long time. It's a millennium. But a lot can happen in, the in that amount of time. Kingdoms can, can, uh, can, can rise and fall in much less time than that. Dynasties can come and go. World wars can be fought. And, uh, and future of nations can be changed. But to God, it's just like yesterday, all that. A thousand years just like yesterday. Uh, you know, I remember yesterday, I think. But that came and went. It's gone. In 24 hours, it was gone. And soon today will become yesterday. And then we'll go to another day. And it's like that for us. Genesis 5 tells us that Methuselah lived longer than anybody on the planet, 969 years. That's almost a thousand years. Can you imagine living a thousand years almost? Can you imagine like Methuselah living from say 1000 AD to 1969? Is that correct? 969 years. That's that's amazing. That is how long he lived. I mean, <laughs> his lifespan. He he saw it all. Trust me, he saw it all. What is but what is that to God? You know, you see those. Those uh, life and death, uh, you know, the life and death given to the people in Genesis 5, what is that to God? He's just viewing another person on the, on the planet that comes along and lives for a certain period of time, even a thousand years almost. And uh, there's the, that's how it is with God. He, he doesn't care about that. And there's another comparison here. Uh, it says here in verse 4, uh, your thousand years in your sight, Lord, are like yesterday which pa when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. It's like a watch in the night. A watch in the night is three or four hours long. A thousand years to God is like a watch in the night to us, like three or four hours. That's how it is to him. You know, 2 Peter 3, 8, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. We wonder why it's taking so long for, God, for Christ to come back. We wonder, why does it take so long? He said it so long ago. This is nothing to him a thousand years. It's a big deal to us. There's nothing to him at all. He doesn't care about this. He doesn't care about time, per se. He's not bound by time. Verse 5. You have swept them away like a flood. Like they fall asleep. In the morning they are grass. They are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and it sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. Just like a flood comes. A flood can come suddenly to a, a, a location. And it happens. You see it happening in different places like in Asia especially. 
and suddenly it can wipe out everything. And, and that's like the brevity of life. Our lives sweep past us as a flood sweeps away all on its path. That's how life is. It's just sweeping by. It's going by. There could have been a village in a place, and now a flood comes and destroys it, wipes it out. That's how life is. You never know what's going to happen. He says, say, it says here they fall asleep. That's a, a, a way to depict death. People die. We all die. Here for a little while, and that's it. Here for a short while. Now note the comparison with the grass of the field. Uh, in the morning, they're like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning, it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening, it fades and withers away. You know, you think that we would like to be compared to something like the mighty oak tree, right? Or maybe the cedars of Lebanon, but that's not what happens here. God says, no, you're kind of like grass. Here today and gone tomorrow. In Israel, uh, green grass can quickly turn into brown and parched grass because of hot weather. And so... That's how life is. We're green for a little while. We flourish. But then thinking that we're immortal. Don't we think we're immortal? Isn't that true? When we're young, we, we say we have our whole life ahead of us. Don't we say that? People say he's young. He's got his whole life ahead of him. Uh, but uh, most young people don't give life a second thought. But we don't know what's going to happen. Our, we don't know when our lives are going to come to an end. We don't know this young man, uh, Wendell's cousin. He didn't know this. 18, 19 years old. It's over with for him, sadly. And we find out we're not that immortal after all. And so there's this contrast between God's sovereignty and our mortality. We're not here very long. Secondly, there's a contrast between God's righteousness and our sin. In verses 7 to 11. Uh, verse 7, uh, we have been consumed by your anger. By your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh, as for the days of our life they contain 70 years. Or if due to strength 80 years, yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. For soon it is gone, we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? One thing you need to understand, the, the eternal God never sins. He's of pure eyes and to behold evil. God's light and him is no darkness at all. He doesn't sin. When Jesus was on earth, he never sinned. 1 Peter 2.22 it says, Christ committed no sin, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. That's why he alone qualifies to be the Savior of all men. He didn't sin. But we are born in sin, and we pursue sin, and we run from God. And God has to come after us, and uh, he saves us, and that's how it is. And as a result, sin brings the judgment of God upon us. So verse 7 says, we have been consumed by your anger. By your wrath we have been dismayed. Dismayed has the idea of being terrified or being disturbed. We're disturbed by the wrath of God. I think the world's, uh, the world's seen nothing. Yeah, wait till it gets to the, the end times when, as it talks about the revelation, and the wrath of God is poured out. They're going to be disturbed then, for sure. That's what the wrath of God's like. It's a terrifying thing to face his wrath. Now, why is Moses talking about the wrath of God? Why is he talking about the anger of God as if he had personal experience with it? The reason is because he had personal experience with it. He knew all about it. Think about this. When they were wandering in the wilderness, this first generation was completely wiped out. They rebelled against the God again and again, and he had no power, no, no choice but to, to unleash his power against them, his wrath against them. And Israel loved to provoke God to wrath. They were always doing it. Like in Exodus 32, for example. They were built, while Moses was on the mountain communing with God, they were building a, a, a calf, a golden calf, and they said, this is the God who led us out of Egypt. Uh, and so they're doing this, and what was the Lord's reaction to that? 3,000 people ended up dead that day. 
And so Moses knew about the wrath of God. In Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire before the Lord. They were consumed before the Lord by God, by the fire that came out from the Lord. In Numbers 11, the people grumbled about the manna, and they wanted more food, and they wanted meat to eat, and so on. And they were struck with a plague. And Moses saw it again, the wrath of God on display. In Numbers 13, the first generation refused to go into the land of Canaan. They wouldn't go. And God promised them that their corpses would fall in the wilderness, and they did. And Hebrews 3.17 says, And with whom was God angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Yeah, he was angry with them, it says. And what about Korah's rebellion that brought on the plague that killed 14,000 people? Again, another act of God. In Numbers 20, when Moses himself sinned, and when he struck the rock twice instead of speaking to it, God said, you're not going in the land of promise. Again and again, Moses, Moses was well acquainted with the wrath of God. He knew it firsthand. He saw it again and again. He saw that God was righteous and that, that we are sinful. You know, the Bible has a message for those who rebel against Christ and reject Christ. It's found in John 3.36. It says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The wrath of God abides on him. It's a terrifying thing to experience the wrath of God, and yet many will. But for those of us who know Christ, we should keep in mind this fact, that Christ took God's wrath upon himself. He took I'm sorry, the wrath of God upon himself for us. He did it for us. And so the terrifying wrath of God has been turned away in Christ for us. Verse 8, you've placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. You know, commit iniquity means that you are walking on a, a, you leave the straight path and you're walking on a crooked path. It's the person who distorts the commands of God, who perverts the commands of God. And these, these iniquities we commit are not out of God's reach. They're committed before him. They're right in front of him because he knows he sees everything. Nothing escapes his notice. Even secret sins don't, are committed in the light of his presence. He sees it all. And we think we're getting away with things, but God, this is all done with God's full knowledge. In fact, in this verse, God's face is compared to a light or a lamp that exposes the darkness all around it. There's no secrets with God. He sees it all. And there's no more powerful light than the light of his presence. He, he knows everything about us. Nothing escapes his attention. Look at verse 9 again. For all our days are decline, have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. This is a, a, a really, uh, this, this psalm is really uh, depicting what happened to Moses and how difficult it was for him. Moses and Israel had experienced the fury of God, and he says, we finished our years like a sigh, which means they finished their, their life with, with weariness. They were weary after a lifetime of heartaches and headaches. They were weary from it all. And he, and he said that's how they felt. In verse 10, as for the days are alive, they contain 70 years. Due to strength, 80 years, yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. As soon as it's gone, we fly away. Now, back in those days, people lived a long time, like we said, Methuselah, 969 years. Moses lived to be 120. Uh, Joshua lived to be 110. Aaron, 123. But as time went on, it became to where it says in this chapter that... Uh, that it became the standard was 70 to 80 years. Uh, even those who would reach 70 years of age and the first generation that went in the wilderness, that, was, that would be a miracle because they were dying in the wilderness. But, but nowadays, it's 70. We live 70, 80 years maybe, and we don't, we're not here that long. Some people are blessed with 
good health and they live a little longer maybe. Others die in the prime of their life. Others can be in good health and die anyway from diseases or sicknesses. But shorter or longer, our life is brief. And it's consumed, our days are consumed by trouble and by labor and sorrow. Now, labor is a good thing, isn't it? It's ordained by God that we work, and that's a good thing. However, Moses is using the term here to, to express uh, frustrations often, often involved in labor. You know on your job how frustrating it can be with people you deal with and circumstances that come up and a million different things, and you get frustrated and no end with a lot of things. It's just like Genesis 3 promised, by the sweat of your brow you shall earn your bread. So work is good, but under the curse it's difficult. And there's problems, and, we, and this is what the scripture uh, predicted. Our lives are often marked by sorrow. There's many kinds of sorrows in life also, besides the tr frustrations from work. Many sorrows involving sickness, involving physical pain, involve, involving pain from relationships, involving financial setbacks, involving wayward children, involving problems on the job, many disappointments in life, and death itself. So many things that are that are difficult. This is reality. And then he goes on to say, for soon life is gone and we fly away. Now I've told you at different times about uh, Sandy's bird feeders in the backyard and, and how it's become interesting to me to watch the different birds that come in and feed. But I'll tell you one thing, once they land, you better go out there and quick and look at them because they're not going to be there long. They're going to take off. And that's how life is. They're like the, the birds that land quickly and fly away. It's, life is compared to that, the brevity of life. Verse 11, who understands the power of your anger? Who can know the power of your anger? Who can understand it? Moses knew something about it. He, he witnessed more funerals than he cared to, to, to be at. He's surrounded by death on every hand, but nobody knows really the extent of God's power. We could never know that unless he showed us. The, the, the uh, Net Bible translates it this way, by the way, who can really fathom the intensity of your anger? You know, Jonathan Edwards preached that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and he wasn't kidding, was he? God is an angry God against sin, against, against people who are spitting in his face. And God will give sinners an opportunity to bow to Christ, but if they refuse, then they can expect the stern judgment of God. The end of verse 11 says, Your fury according to the fear that is due you. In other words, the fury of God is what causes people to fear God. And once they see his fury, then they fear him. But how much better to submit to him without seeing his wrath. So life is fleeting, it's uncertain, and the distance between God and us continues to widen as we look at this psalm. So how do we feeble creatures live in, the, in this uncertain world? How do we live before an eternal sovereign God? <clears throat> well, here's the application, verses 12 to 17. We must live in dependence upon God. We must always live in dependence upon God. Verse 12 says, So teach us to number our days that we may present to, our, your, to you a heart of wisdom. Do return, O Lord, how long will it be, and be sorry for your servants. O satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness, that we may bring, sing for joy, and be glad for all, your, all, your, all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us, and the years we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants, and your majesty to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. I love verse 12, and I think a lot of people in this room probably do. So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Or as I've learned it, teach us to number our days, King James, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. 
And that's exactly what the rich fool did not do in Luke chapter 12. The, the rich fool in Luke 12 said, Soul, you have much, many goods laid up for many years. It's just the wrong attitude altogether. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And God answered him by saying this, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And there are many people who ignore God in their lives and think they're going to live their own lives and do whatever they want to do, but God has a say-so in the matter because he's sovereign. So what do we do? Well, we must ask God to teach us to number our days. We can't, we can't see that on our own. We need the Lord's help to understand his perspective on the brevity of life. We need his help, and so we should ask him, teach us to number our days. Teach us to be aware of how few of them there really are. We don't know what we have. We don't know how much time we have. So don't get busy, so busy with the distractions of life that we forget about this. We're not here very long. We have to make each day count. Ephesians 5.16 says this, making the most of your time. Making the most of your time. Now, this doesn't mean that we, don't, we never have any relaxation or rest. Of course, these things are important. They're part of life. We need them. But it does mean that we're to value our time. How many of us just waste time, fritter it away on nothing at all? Just senseless things, things that are uh, frivolous. He says, so teach us to number our days. Why? That we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Heart of wisdom. Heart of wisdom is one that follows after God. A heart of wisdom is one that has the fear of the Lord for the as the beginning of wisdom. A heart of wisdom is one that seeks the will of God above its own. It's one that focuses on the spiritual need of others. It's one that serves God. Let me ask you a question. Do you take the time to number your, to number your days? Do you, do you realize the mortality of your own soul? Do you think about this? Do you ask God to, teach, to help you teach you to number your own days? Are you seeking to present to him a heart of wisdom? We've got to come to the place where we understand and evaluate the brevity of life and learn to invest in eternity. As Jonathan Edwards again said, God stamp into my eyes eternity. And think in terms of eternal eternity. By the way, it not only applies to the old people, that applies to the young people as well. To everybody. Verse 13, do return, O Lord. He says, Moses has spoken of sin and judgment of God upon Israel, upon him and, the, and his people in the wilderness. Now he appeals to God's mercy. He says, Lord, do return. In other words, come back to us out of your anger. Come and have mercy upon us again. Be merciful to us, Lord. You've shown wrath against us, now be merciful. He says, how long will it be? In other words, how long must we, how long must we suffer? How long will it be before we, uh, until you show us your mercy? And then he says, be sorry for your servants. You know, Moses claims that the Israelites are, are the servants of God. They had rebelled against the Lord, he had, but he had not forsaken them. You know, God never disowned his people. He never disowned Israel altogether. He, he always was faithful to them. He punished them, he judged them, and he never disowned them. Verse 14, Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. In the morning, satisfy us. Morning, probably a metaphor for a time of renewal after a time of affliction. They've had affliction, now he wants renewal. You know, sometimes nighttime can be a frightening, miserable experience, can it? People get sick, and they're not feeling good and they want to go to the doctor and they spend the night in misery. And this is how, this is how it was for Moses. He, was, he, was, he had been miserable, but he wanted a time of renewal. And so he longed for the loving and kindness of God to satisfy him after the time of judgment. Loving kindness is that, is that steadfast, loyal love of God. And this is what Moses longed for. 
And the only thing that can truly satisfy the people of God is what? It's God himself, right? Only God himself can satisfy the people of God. Nothing is more satisfying than walking with God and being in fellowship with him. The greatest thing in the world. Sin doesn't satisfy us, but the presence of God does. Where are you seeking your satisfaction tonight? Are you seeking it in God or some cheap substitute that can never satisfy your soul? Where are you seeking that at? And what's the result of being satisfied with God? He says that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Satisfaction with God brings joy, doesn't it? Brings gladness. Spurgeon said this, he said, When the Lord refreshes us with his presence, our joy is such that no man can take it from us. So we want the, we want the joy of God and not the misery of sin. Verse 15, Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. Moses is basically saying this. He's saying, Lord, Lord, you have made us sad by afflicting us due to our sins. Now make us glad. Restore us to your favor. According to the days you've afflicted us, in that same, me in that same measure, in that same proportion, make us glad, he's saying. He's, he's tired of misery. He's tired of adversity. He's tired of judgment. He's tired of the wrath of God. He wants mercy, and he wants joy, and he wants gladness. So he's praying for this. Verse 16. Let your work appear to your servants and your, and your majesty to their children. There's that word servants again. Almost as if God is, Moses is reminding God that we're your servants. <laughs> and so he prays for God's work to appear to his servants. In Deuteronomy 32.4, Moses declared that God's work is perfect. He wanted the people of God to, to see the power of God on display so that they might be encouraged. When God is at work, the people of God are encouraged. They see him working. They're encouraged by that. And he talks about the majesty, your majesty, their children. The children are the ones who inherit the promised land. The first generation died. They died in the wilderness. The children would inherit the land. And Moses knew, knew that they needed to see the splendor and the glory of God, so he prays this. The older generation had failed, but Moses realized there's a new generation on the scene. And, and let's pray for them. By the way, let me say that it's very important to pray for our children, for the next generation. Do you pray for your children? This is the generation to come. This is the ones on, on up, uh, coming up in the ranks here. And this is part of our applying our hearts to wisdom. Are we praying for them? Do we pray for them to, that, that God will show his majesty to them? Do we pray that God will work in their hearts? Do we pray that God will show them their sin? That God will show them their need of Christ? Do we pray like this? Are we praying that God will be glorified in their lives? It's extremely important to pray for our children. As Moses says here, verse 17, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. He says, let the favor of the Lord God our, our God be upon us. Moses is praying that God's approval, approval will be upon them and he will delight in them. Even for his own sake, even though he's not going to go in the promised land. And confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. You know, you can't ask the Lord to confirm and establish the work of, of his hands unless, uh, unless it's his work. If it's his work, then you can pray that way, that God will bless his work and establish his work and make his work successful. You could pray then like that. Otherwise, you can't. And so we should be, our, let me ask you a question. Are we praying, are all of us praying for this place? I believe this is the work of God here. I believe that's why this church was started. When this church was started, by the way, when someone, uh, when, when, when we left that other church, Someone called me and said that uh, they said that uh, you guys basically split the church. And I didn't think about it at the time, but later on I thought about it, and it occurred to me 
I thought to myself, man, I wish I would have thought of this when I was talking to the guy. I believe that God split the church. Now, that sounds strange. But there were people there that weren't interested in following God's word. And I think he split the church in order to start this church. That's what my perspective is on this. And so I do believe, and God can shut this place down today. We're nothing special at all here. I do believe that God has established this place for a reason, for people to be saved, people to hear the truth preached, not because we're so great, but because he can be glorified in this. And so I believe that. And I, and I want to ask you a question. Are you praying for this place and for God to bless this effort being put forth for the Lord that he'll be glorified? We need to ask God to bless the work of his hands. And so this is the application, how we can gain God's perspective on the brevity of life. There's only one way we can do this. With all life's ups and, ups and downs, with all its upheavals, with all of its joys as well as sorrows, even the possibility of death, we need to realize that we must live in absolute dependence upon God. Teach us to number our days so we may present to you a heart of wisdom. We, we must ask him to help us to be wise in how we handle things. We must plead for his mercy. We, we ask him to help us and have an impact on eternity so we are able to do his work. These are the things we need to do. Let's close in prayer and ask God to help us with these things tonight. Lord, we are grateful for your word again. And we do pray, Lord, we, we do believe that you have us here for a reason, Lord. We don't know, we don't know all the ins and outs of it. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. None of us uh, deserve to be in any uh, position here at all. Uh, we deserve nothing at all. Lord, this is all by grace. And we just pray we would always remember that and walk with you humbly and serve you humbly. But Lord, if you want to use us here in this place, we pray you will. We pray we'll do it for the glory of God. We pray that Christ will be exalted in all that we do here. We pray people will be saved. And we pray lives will be changed. And we commit this to you tonight in Christ's name. Amen.